Good morning. Great to see you folks this morning. I want to invite you, if you would take your Bibles, uh, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I'm proud to say I'm one of those that we just sang about. I believe that he is alive and that he came to purchase me for my sin. John chapter 15 is where I'll invite you to turn. Uh, we're walking through, if you're just joining with us, we're walking through a countdown to Easter. And so we're going through the Gospel of John. And as we're walking through the Gospel of John, we just want to see a glimpse of who Jesus is and how he reveals himself specifically to the world, uh, the, the, the people there in Jerusalem at this time, and even more pointed to the disciples. As he's counting down, walking to the cross, these days leading up to his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We're at Thursday, if that helps you in any kind of way. That would be my understanding. It's Thursday night, Thursday night, and they are preparing for the, fast, the Passover feast. Uh, so as we're at Thursday night before he is crucified on Friday, um, I, I think about this. So we're, we're looking, actually, and I ask you to turn to John 15. It's John 13 through 17, and that scares some people that I would preach through four chapters, but it's John 13 through 17 is actually taking place on Thursday night. And it's what we uh, commonly call the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. Um, I think about this, and I try not to think about it a lot, but uh, I remember, uh, and many of you might remember as well, the, the first day of kindergarten and how we prepared our daughter, and we had purchased the, the new backpack, the new clothes, the new shoes, the new socks, the new everything, uh, and we just went through, and we made sure, hey, did, she needs these kinds of pencils. Y'all remember the big, thick pencils? Man, those were sweet. Um, but uh, uh, the, those kinds of pencils, need, a, need these pencils, need this notebook, needs this for school. And, and, and my wife, Tina and I both are so just meticulous, her more than me, of course, but, but OCD, about making sure that everything was prepared in the right place and went through the checklist. What's she going to do for lunch? And what's she going to do here? And, they just, and the whole day just kind of laying it out and thinking through, she's going to need this, let's prepare her, and then we walk her in. And then we let go of her. And she never came back as someone who'd never been to school before. You know, she came back changed. She came back, she had had new experiences. I understand that there's more days like that coming, and don't like to think about it, but there's going to be that college experience, right? And we'll do the same thing. We're going to make sure that they have everything. She, she's got all the stuff that she needs, and if she's moving to a place, probably not. She's going to live with me forever. But, but if she, she's moving to a place, right, we're going to make sure that she has all the stuff, that she can actually continue life without us being there, just present, Watching over her constantly, all right, instead of watching through social media constantly, those kind of things, all right? So that's kind of the idea that I have from John 13 through 17. Imagine this. This is Jesus, Son of God, came to earth, lived for 30 years, just as a carpenter's son, if you will. That's our understanding. At the age of 30, he then begins to handpick disciples and he says i'll take you and you follow me you follow me lay down your nets and you follow me and he has these 12 guys that he surrounds himself with as you get into john chapter 13 it's a really unique expression that i find there but it, it says basically that jesus longed for the opportunity to sit down with these disciples on thursday night you see the one thing he has going for him is this 
we saw last week, the disciples still seem to be oblivious about who Jesus is, a little confused at times. Maybe he is the Messiah. I don't know, maybe he could be. Well, no, well, he could be. And so the disciples are confused. Jesus is not. And as you read through John chapter 13 through 17, I would invite you just to see this. Jesus knows his hour is at hand. Jesus knows that he is about to be betrayed. Jesus knows who's going to betray him. Jesus knows enough that he can identify who's going to betray him by handling him a morsel of bread and say, this is going to be the one that's going to betray me. It confuses the disciples, which really is weird for me. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows that Peter has good intentions, that Peter wants to be the one to fight for him, to help him establish his kingdom. Jesus knows that Peter's going to deny him. He even, in fact, tells him specifically, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Jesus knows these things. Jesus knows that Judas is betraying him. Jesus knows the Roman guard is being collected together. There's a mob that's in the early stages of gathering to come. Jesus knows these things. Jesus knows, according to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that he is about to become sin. He is about to actually literally become the sin of the world and the wrath of God the Father is going, and he would know it better than you and I could understand it, but Jesus knows the wrath of God is about to be poured out on him. That's a lot on your plate. You know what I'm saying? That's a lot of stuff to have on your mind. Jesus knows these things. And here's what it says in John 13, and I love it. It says that Jesus longed to meet with the disciples that night. He looked forward to it. I mean, it's kind of like, hey, I got a lot on me. You know what I'm saying? I got a lot of things going on this weekend. But one of the most important things Thursday night, he says, I want to get together with my guys. And we're going to sit down one last time. We're going to have one last time together, one last meal together. We're going to actually have some conversation. And what Jesus does, he's packing that backpack for him. He says, listen, you're not going to kindergarten. Mm-mm. You're not even heading off to big, scary college. But you're about to go out into the world in a way you've never been out in the world before. And so he knows these things are coming. And his focus in John 13 through 17, I want to get you ready. I don't want you to be surprised. I want you to know what I can tell you. I want you to know what you need. I want to pack your backpack full of just the essential discipleship stuff. Here's what you need to live in the world after this weekend. It's the first day for the disciples. You say, how do you figure that? I mean, it's the first day. It's not the day of resurrection. No, no, no. But this technically is, this is when it's about to get real. I think for the disciples, it's been very entertaining, if you will. They've been watching the miracles. They've been listening to him teach. Kind of been part of the show, you know. It's kind of been right there at the center of attention. That's got to be nice to a certain extent. Now it's time for him to leave. They're going to, in essence, they're going to, part ways and we say well jesus never really left him jesus actually really was folks crucified he died john the one that jesus loves is how he's identified in the gospel of john john's standing close enough to jesus where we would understand probably the splatter from the crucifixion of blood would fall on john yeah how do you live after that what do you do after you see your messiah crucified What do you do after they wrap him up in the grave clothes and they put him in the grave and they put that tomb over it with a Roman seal and the Roman guard? How do you live after that? Jesus knows these things are coming, so he prepares them. Just to kind of help us, uh, I'd like to focus in the heart 
uh, of what I would uh, say is the farewell discourses target, if you will. John 15, begin reading with me. I like to read just 1 through 17, and then I want to come back and kind of hop around. Here's the progression of what's happened. John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Then they begin to eat together, and as they're eating together, Jesus is teaching and instructing them. There's a uh, somewhat controversial verse that happens uh, around 1431. It says, they got up and went out. And then as they get up and go out, Jesus continues to teach them, as I would understand it. He's telling them, be prepared for this, be ready for this. You should anticipate this, expect this to happen. People are going to do this to you, be aware. Then they get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And before they enter into the Garden of Gethsemane that Thursday night, we would understand that Jesus, in John 17, he leads a prayer for the disciples. And just kind of timeline, don't crisscross that. It's not a matter of he goes into the inner garden to pray for them. No, no, no. The high priestly prayer in John 17, it appears to be a time as Jesus is with the disciples, they're moving towards the garden, and it seems like I would imagine some kind of gathering out in the open, and he says, let me pray for you. John 15, our focus text this morning, reads this way. This is from the ESV, verses 1 through 17. Jesus says, uh, as they're moving to the garden, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. That's how it works. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, they're thrown into the fire and burned. That's a grim picture. Verse 7, it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask my Father, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. There's four simple things that I would see. And again, I want to just provide 
an overview. That's the heart, the target, I think, of the farewell discourse. Four simple things that happen. What does it mean for us to live as a disciple? How do we pack our backpack, if you will, and prepare for living in this world as we live for an intentional purpose? Looks something like this. Uh, first thing I would see here is this, and many of you have inside your bulletin insert if you want to fill in the blanks. Fill in the blanks, of course, is from Jesus. Uh, the disciples' uh, relationship, I think that's what we see first, is that before you go into the world, before you go out, Jesus says actually two things you're going to encounter. He says clearly in the great uh, discourse here, he says you're going to encounter Satan. That's going to be alarming, right? He tells them you, you're going to encounter Satan, and he says, but take heart, I've overcome Satan. He says, secondly, you're going, to overcome, you're going to encounter the world, and the world is going to hate you, and the world's going to persecute you, the world's going to reject you, the world's going to treat you poorly because you try to live for me. And as you do that, don't sweat it, I've overcome the world. So he tells them, he says, hey, for a disciple, the most important thing that we need to see as we're going out into the world where God has placed us is this relationship concept. Now, I would love to give you, uh, I think, a checklist of things that we need to do this week. And as we do those things, then we're a disciple of Jesus. Jesus emphasizes this for his disciples. He says, it's about you having a relationship with God. Have you done everything perfectly this week? I'm not the Holy Spirit. Let me say this to you. You haven't. <laughs> we haven't, have we? Have we done everything with our our actions and our attitudes, everything has been honoring to God? No. No, it's not. And the thing that we would see here is this. We continue, you and I, we struggle with the temptation to sin because we live surrounded by the world. We are under attack constantly by Satan. So Jesus says this, you need more than a checklist of do this and you are right, don't do this and you are wrong. More than that, you and I need to live in an active relationship with Jesus. Here's how this relationship comes about. If you look with me in John 13, John 13, I'm going to ask you just to turn back and forth just a little bit. It's going to be within that scope of 13 to 17. But John 13, John 13 beginning verse 13, here's what Jesus says, all right? And I study this, I look at this church, and I say, why is he talking about washing the feet? Is that just like a Jesus comes to serve? And it's a really weird message for us. We've got to be careful about, all right? Jesus is not your servant. And at the same time, I would say to you, Jesus is your ultimate servant. Here's what we understand. Jesus, as he's gathered together with his disciples on this final night, he gathers them up and he says, I want to let you know, there's no foot washer here. That's typical. That any time that there's a meal in the first century, that there's a servant that is there that would come around, and it's a very lowly, disgusting job, but that servant would wash all the participants of the meal's feet. It's a gesture of hospitality. So Jesus, when he gathers them together in John 13, he says, hey, I want you to know, they, they didn't show up. They're not there. We don't, we're not told where they are. They're just not there. They didn't show up for work. So Jesus says he takes off his outer garments and he wraps a towel around himself. He begins to go one by one to each of the disciples and he washes their feet. He takes on that role of a servant. But I would tell you, as I said, 
It's not that Jesus is our servant where we tell him what to do and he just does it. That's not the picture. He sees this. We see this kind of play out. His interaction with Peter. Peter's going to bow up, <laughs> of course. Peter bows up and he says, hey, you're not going to wash my feet. No, 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 no. You're the king. You're not going to wash my feet. And the conversation that you'll find in John 13 with Peter goes something like this. The real message is this. Jesus doesn't work for us. And if, if you're thinking that in any kind of way, you're going to pursue Jesus, you're going to try to live for Jesus, you're going to follow Jesus, and that means rainbows and lollipops falling from the sky at all times, that means no pain, no ache, you, you're confused. Because Jesus clearly says this, He is not one that's going to simply bail you out of every difficult problem. In fact, because you follow Him, you will have more problems. You will have more difficulty as a follower of Christ as you attempt to live for him and stand for him. But Jesus says this to Peter, and the message for us today, Jesus says, I'm your ultimate servant. In order for you to have a relationship with God, you have to allow Jesus to work in your life in a way that you can't do on your own. You've got a problem. I have a problem. We cannot fix our problem. Our problem is this inherent nature inside of us. We long to rebel and be our own God. It's called sin. And what the Scripture indicates for us here is this. Jesus comes voluntarily from heaven. I can't get that. He comes voluntarily from heaven. He limits himself, Philippians 2 says, to the form of man, taking on the likeness of man. He lives among mankind. He is not influenced by sin. He does not have an inherent sin nature. We do. We love rebellion. We love rebellion against God. So as Jesus comes and he lives among us, he does the work of the ultimate servant. And he says, I'm going to fix your sin problem. And there's no amount of work or effort or giving or sacrifice you can do that will fix it. Jesus tells the disciples this. He says, in order to have a relationship with me, you've got to be served by Jesus. You have to be served by Jesus. John 13, 13, Jesus says this. You call me teacher. And Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So he says there, I must wash your feet. That's not a literally take off your shoes. That is a spiritual concept of you have to allow Jesus to do something in your life to fix and address a problem you can't even touch in your own strength and power. You say, well, I'm just going to continue to go to church and I'm going to live a pretty good life as best I possibly can. And as I'm in church and living a good life, then God will see that and reward that. Can I say to you, God will see that in your sin and your sinful efforts and he will punish that. Because there's one standard and it is the standard of perfection. And that is found only in the God-man Jesus Christ. Have you allowed him to do for you what you can't possibly do. To serve you with this offer of cleansing, not of your feet, but cleansing of your soul.
This is how you enter into a relationship with Jesus. You've got to have Jesus serve you. If you turn with me to 14.1, should be just a page over perhaps. Jesus then also says this, for a disciple to have a relationship, he says in verse 14.1, I'm just going to outline the passage for you is what we're walking through here, church. 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus says, a disciple has to have belief. He said, well, I've heard, and this is my story, I'd heard about Jesus in church my entire life, and I was perishing. But there comes a point when I see what he has done for me, I have to either put my faith in it or I have to put on a show. Belief saves, show condemns. So Jesus says, believe in me, believe in me, believe in God, believe in me. Also in verse 12 there in chapter 14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And I can't dwell on this too long, but I want to. So let's just touch it. You ready? Jesus says the work that he's done is salvation for the entire world. He tells his disciples the work that you're going to do after I'm gone is going to be greater than the work that I've done. So what happened? Could you, could you run me through that one more time? And here's the idea for us, church. You and I together are not coexisting for the sake of coexisting. You and I together are called to the work of Christ. And as we have relationship with Jesus, we're putting our faith in him, and our faith is displayed daily. Can you think with me about that just for a second? Just for a second. How has your faith actually shown up? And I'm not against it. I know any time that I, I talk about something from the pulpit, people say, well, he's against that. Don't do that. I want to be very conscious. Let me say it that way. I want to be very conscious of my attire being my only testimony. Let me say this to you. I want to be very conscious. Uh, I teach at a school that has Christian on everything. It's mandated. We wear Christian logo. All right, that says literally Christian on it. I want to be very conscious that my T-shirt is the only testimony for Christ that I give. I want to be very conscious that the, the bumper sticker on my car is the only testimony for Christ that I give. Which, by the way, if that ichthus is stuck on your car, one, know what that means. Two, drive like it. You see, the idea of being a disciple has been watered down. And we're so anxious to say, anybody can do it. Listen, those who put their faith that's active in Jesus Christ can do it. But it requires us to have a testimony that will accomplish souls being saved. People growing closer to Christ because of us. Don't let it just be what we put on. Let it be what's put inside of us. Three, it says this, our relationship. What we read in 15.9. 15.9, not words that we normally use, but here's what Jesus says repeatedly. He uses this word. 15.9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide. Abide means that we remain. 
And can I say this to you, church, if you just look at this, what does it mean for me to have a relationship with God? I recognize that he has served me by sacrificing himself on the cross for me. I believe that. I put my active faith in that on a daily basis. I need to not daily be saved, but daily live saved. And third, here's the idea for us. Once I'm saved, it's settled because it was done by the one who can save me, not by myself and my own strength. So the concept for me is this. Satan is going to attack a true disciple. The world is going to attack a true follower of Jesus Christ. It should happen, it will happen to those who are actively pursuing Jesus Christ. So when that happens, here's what Jesus says. Remain in these truths. He has overcome Satan. He's overcome the world. He lives inside of you daily. Remain in that. Dwell in that. Let that resonate inside of us. So that's the disciples' relationship. Let me move on. There's also the disciples' responsibility. Four things that I see here. I'll just touch them quickly. First, we've got to serve others. So after he serves us, ultimately, it should change our mindset. It should change our perspective, church, where we say we do not live now to be served, but because Jesus has saved us and served us, we, you and I together, now live looking for, seeking, desiring opportunities to serve other people. Not so that they could just be benefited, but so that they could be drawn to the Savior. Jesus also says this, our disciples' responsibility, we've got to obey his word. His word is truth. His word is something that we do not take lightly as a disciple. If we're going to pack our backpacks, we're going to take the word of God and we're going to shove it in there and we're going to pull it out regularly. And we're going to say, this is the guidebook for how I know how to live, how, to, how I know how to obey. Third, it says we've got to love people. Let's, let's spend a second there. If you look with me in John 15, verse 12. 15, oh, excuse me, not that one. Let's do this one. John 13 Go back to John 13. I think this is the clearest picture here. John 13, verse 34. John 13, verse 34. We're talking about the responsibility of a disciple to love other people. What does that look like? John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And I, I blow through that pretty fast. Did you hear it? He says, what's our standard for how we should love each other? Just as Jesus loved us. Just as Jesus loved us. So if I have been uh, rebellious against Jesus, disrespectful towards Jesus, apathetic towards Jesus in any kind of way, and he loved me in that, that means that when I encounter people who are rebellious towards Jesus, when people who are apathetic towards Jesus, when people who speak negatively against Jesus, when I encounter them, I'm to love them. In a divine modeled for me in Jesus kind of way. You see, I, I was really hoping for that whole thing of Christian, surround yourself with Christian people who are easy to get along with. That's what I was going for. But now Jesus has said this, Christian, surround yourself with people who the world can't love, who the world rejects. Christian, surround yourself with people that the world overlooks, the world neglects, the world actually discriminates against. Christians, surround yourself with those people and love them. Love them. But don't, don't miss 35. Of course, 35. By this, the way we love, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
if you have love for one another. And church, we can't get around 1335. The, the testimony to Ecru, Mississippi, Pontotoc, New Albany, and, and all the surrounding area is this. It's not about how tall our building is or how many vans we've got. It's not about any of that stuff. But our testimony is how you and I don't tolerate each other. No, no, no. But he says love one another. And he actually, in 1335, Jesus says, for a disciple living among disciples, then the disciples, the way that they love one another, is not actually something that people just see. It's actually something people are drawn to. So we would biblically say this. Hey, what do y'all have going on over there at Friendship? Got some good stuff going on? Yeah, we got some good stuff going on. Here's what's going on. You ready? We love each other. Even those difficult ones. And then we insert the point of a finger, and we just point at a friendship member who's difficult to love. Go ahead, do it now. No, we, we love one another. Quit pointing at your husband, ma'am. All right, so the concept immediately, she was, I'm, I'm with you, Pastor. Here he is. The concept for us here is this. A disciple has a unique love, and it shows. It's not something they talk about. It's a slogan. Look at our website. It shows in how we react to one another. And then the fourth thing that builds up here is this, church. A disciple has the responsibility, letter D, to actually bear fruit. And I love that because I think what I envision is this. Jesus, John 14, 31, has left the upper room with his disciples. I think they're walking along, and as you study Jerusalem, you study probably Garden of Gethsemane, Garden, of course, I think they're surrounded by vines and branches. And they would know this, that any vine that has a branch and the branch never produces fruit, the disciples would be familiar that's no good. He's speaking their language. And that's helpful. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, that's helpful. But I'm thinking, my responsibility as a follower of Jesus is that I bear fruit. Grapes? Oranges? What, what is that? And so as I study Scripture, all right, and I'll look at places like Galatians 5 where we talk, of course, about the fruit of the Spirit, but also find other pictures in the Scripture where this word fruit is used, and it's not talking about the character, the fruit of the Spirit inside of us, but it's actually talking about souls being saved. I would say to you this, the mark of a disciple, the responsibility that I have on me, my backpack packed by Jesus, says this, that I, one, am bearing fruit based on the kind of person that I'm becoming. Well, pastor, you're not perfect. Thank you again already married know that i'm not perfect but let me say this to you i'm pursuing it i'm going after it and it's only in the strength and the calling of jesus christ in our lives he draws us to want to be more like jesus brother if you have no desire to look act think more like jesus that's a really scary alarm that goes off when I hear you talk about things like that because the Holy Spirit living inside every believer is prompting these things. And if you don't have a desire for it, it's likely you don't have the Spirit inside of you. Can I ask you to make your calling and election sure that the Holy Spirit is constantly, hey, 
making you aware of sin in your life. Say, I sin and I don't even feel guilty anymore. That's not something a disciple brags about. But it's something that we need to be alarmed by. To say, in my life, I should see fruit. I walked the aisle for the first time when I was nine years old. When I was 17, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And can I say to you, I've been saved ever since that day. I know that. But can I share this with you? Who you see here today, still not perfect, still not like that 17-year-old. I'm growing daily. Fruit in my life, my character is being shaped more and more, sometimes through hardship and disappointment, I'm becoming more like Jesus. Also, fruit talks about the people that we're influencing. And can I say to you, parents, you should be influencing someone. Awana volunteers, understand this, and I know, man, it's every Wednesday night, apparently. You are pouring Jesus into children. Youth volunteers, you're pouring Jesus, influencing teenagers to walk with the Lord, and that's going to not just be for the rest of their lives. That's going to be eternal for most of them. Wow. This is what fruit would look like. So we have the disciples' relationship, the disciples' responsibility. Let me move quickly. Three, the disciples' resources. Because at this point we say, Pastor, you overwhelmed me. Hey, i got to tell you, man, when I read 13 through 17, I'm overwhelmed myself, except for this. Jesus did not leave us alone. He did not say, good luck. He gave us these four things. One, we need a faith community. We need a faith community. And we argue this in our culture. I know there's many temptations, many draws away from it. Can I say to you, the best place for you to grow as a disciple is regularly in the midst of disciples. That's the best place. And friend, the more you can get there, the more you have a chance of receiving that nourishment, those nutrients, so you could grow. And we hear this. Well, I can download a sermon. Be better than yours, Brother Casey. Thank you again for saying that. All right? Please stop posting it on my Facebook page. But what we would say is this. Yes. But this is our garden right here. Okay? We've got several little gardens that meet before this big place. And you're welcome. We encourage you. Plug into one of those. Because if you can be the right seed and the right soil, that's going to produce the right crop. So we encourage you. He tells the disciples, be in community with one another. These guys are about to be unleashed by the power of the Holy Spirit on the lost world. And 11, by the way, let's see, let me do this math right. We're going to have 11 of the disciples are going to continue to Pentecost. Judas is going to hang out someplace else. They're going to... Rep- Then, got that from you, brother. You know I did. So, after Judas is gone, they're going to replace. So, we're going to go back to 12 apostles, okay? And 11 of them are going to be horrifically murdered for the sake of Christ. Welcome. Altar's right here. 11 of the original 12 apostles are going to be horrifically murdered for the sake of Christ. John, 
the apostle whom Jesus loves, the author of the Gospel of John, is the only apostle who's not horrifically murdered for the sake of Christ. He was thrown in a vat of boiling oil and exiled to Patmos, but outside of that, easy stuff for the sake of Christ. You're not going to be able to accomplish the calling God has placed on your life without people who share that calling. Second, second resource is this. Jesus invites him to pray. Pray. Ask anything in my name. Ask anything in line with my will. And my Father wants to do that through you. Ask it. One of the greatest tragedies of the Christian life. Church, we don't really understand how to pray. Jesus is inviting us throughout the pages of Scripture Come and pray, come and pray, come and pray, come and pray. My power, the power of the Father is going to be unleashed through the Holy Spirit in your life. And we don't know how to do that well. Where would you learn that? Faith community. We learn to pray together in a biblical way. Third resource, we got the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Actually, John 14 and John 16, all about the Holy Spirit of God. Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, makes us aware of judgment, makes us aware of the return of Christ. Holy Spirit illuminates Scripture for us. All this is found as Jesus talks about the Spirit, John 14 and John 16. Listen, I may not be much, but I got something much in me. I got the Holy Spirit of God living inside of me. And He is unleashed on the world around me because His heart is to hear the people around me hear and receive the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit living inside of me. I'm not going to make it on my own. Then lastly is this. I've got His Word. I've got His Word. It's right here for us, church. It's the clearest one. We said we don't know how to pray. We don't really understand that Holy Spirit stuff. We're not really sure about the church because it's full of imperfect people. But this is the Word of God. We've got this. Have we been in it? Are we students of it? Are we testing it to prove that it's true? Can we share it with other people? When people challenge us, do we back down? Well, I guess you're right. Can we take the Word of God with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, with prayer being our access to God the Father, and we say in biblical faith community, here's Jesus Christ, and He is lifted high and exalted through us so that you might be drawn to Him, and you might, even though you've got a past, you might be drawn to Jesus Christ and saved. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's the tools that are in our backpack. Our resources are right there. And finally, Jesus says this, and this lays throughout John 13 through 17, as he actually concludes with the, what we call the high priestly prayer in John 17. This is the thread that runs through it. Last tool for a disciple, to live as a disciple. We need the disciple's resolution. 15.8, you'll see it there. It's printed. It's also on the wall behind me. It's also in your Bible. It says this, 15.8, by this, my Father's glorified. And so today, church, I just ask you a very simple question. Do you care if the Father is glorified through you? Is that even an interest in your life? You say, yeah, that stirs me up. Look at what Jesus says. He says, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And that's how you prove that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Who are you proving it to? Well, definitely the world around you is going to see your love for the brother. 
So they're going to be drawn to you because of your love. They're going to hear your testimony. But who else are you proving it to? You're also having this confirmed among other believers. Well, other believers are saying, oh, I see in your life, there's a unique desire inside of you that you're pursuing hard and heavy after Jesus. Man, you stumble and fall flat on your face sometimes. It's, wow, you just really blow it sometimes. Praise God. I love it when you get up, brother. That encourages my soul to see you fall and get up again in grace. He says, you're glorified, not when you're perfect, but you glorify God when you're living for Him, when you're going after Him, when you recognize sin in your life and you just honestly say, this sin doesn't glorify God, so I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to confess it. And actually, the same author of the Gospel of John wrote 1 John, where he says in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins... He, being Jesus Christ, is faithful and just to cleanse you of your sins. Whew. You see, a disciple is someone who's living in this world within relationship with God. He's somebody that's living in this world. He's got this responsibility where we're not saying, let's just live. Let's just live. Let's get through today. Get to next Sunday. Get to next Sunday. Stop getting from Sunday to Sunday, brother. Let's get into pursuing hard and heavy after Jesus Christ. One of the things that the Greek text miss, church, is this. It's the actual passion of the true story. You and I tend to, because we've heard it so many times, we tend to hear Jesus saying, go into all the world, share the gospel. That's not what happened. This man, Jesus Christ, Thursday night, is walking out, walking into the garden. He says, hold on, guys. It's impressed upon me. You guys are going through hell pretty soon. And you're going to go through hell because you're going to see the one who's leading you, who you have maybe some of you confusing claims towards. You're going to see me brutally murdered. You're going to see me placed in a tomb. And you, some of you, are going to lose hope for a moment. I don't want you to lose hope. Let's turn to God the Father and call out to him and say, help us walk in this world. Help us walk in this world. Jesus is going to go into that garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pray. They're going to come and they're going to arrest him. All these things that he's proclaimed, all these things that he's prophesied about come true in him. And the disciples in Acts chapter 1, sitting together in a room going, what do you think we should do now? Actually, we go back to John 21, and there's this argument that seven of them, after they saw Jesus dead, buried, crucified, put in that tomb, went back to their old jobs. Let's just go fishing again, I guess. I want to invite you, church. Here, you and I, together, Holy Spirit living inside of us, Word of God, access to God through prayer. We have opportunity to see God the Father glorified in this place unlike He ever has been before. And it's about us taking that backpack, walking out into that world. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, as we come to you today, thank you for the way that you call us and you equip us. Oh, wow, a calling without an equipping is scary. But you've called us and you've equipped us. You've placed us here together. And God, we anticipate great and mighty, wonderful things happening in our midst because you're in our midst. And so, Lord, whatever's standing in our way this morning, from you being glorified, Lord, if it's what we watch on TV, if it's what we're listening to, if it's who we're hanging around, whatever it is, God, 
if it's our past, if it's relationships, whatever it is, God, whatever's keeping you from being glorified in our lives, we want to lay that down. And we need your help to do that. So, Lord, we want to have a time of confession, repentance, invitation. Because we want to not condemn each other. We want to encourage and support, surround one another, and say, hey, I'm struggling too. Hey, I need some help this week. I need somebody to call me. I need somebody to pray for me. I need somebody to text me and say, keep on that walk, that road. Keep going. Don't give up. I need somebody that's there for me when I struggle, when I fall, when I completely blow it. God, we need each other. With you living inside of us, your word guiding us, we need each other. So Lord, whatever's keeping us from glorifying you, would you reveal it to us during this time? And call us to the altar of sacrifice so that we might experience the grace of forgiveness and restoration. And it's in your name we pray.